There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. I hope this finds you safe and well amid the current COVID-19 lockdown. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Michael McMahon to discuss how we manage the macro economy. Michael is a Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford and is also a member of Ireland's Fiscal Advisory Council. I'd arranged this discussion with Michael uh, sometime before the COVID-19 outbreak and we'd originally planned to discuss the fiscal and monetary tools used to manage the economy, that is, how central banks and governments manage our economy. Given recent developments, and this episode was recorded on the 30th of March 2020, we've tried to kill two birds with one stone and also address how these tools can be used to respond to the COVID-19 outbreak. So hopefully we can fill in the gaps when it comes to understanding the policy levers before going on to discuss how they may be employed during the current crisis. So Michael is very well placed to address this topic. Uh, among his varied work, he has um, worked with the Bank of England, which is the UK central bank. And also, ha- as I said, he's a member of Ireland's Fiscal Advisory Council. So therefore, it's very well placed to tell us how to address uh, this topic at hand. A quick note, uh, this is the first remote recording, so sound is not up to my usual high standards, but um, please do not fear. I've learned a lot and expect future recordings to be infinitely better. However, Michael is very clear and that clarity of thought hopefully will break through any muddied sound. So we begin our conversation of fiscal and monetary policy by considering what is it that comprises good fiscal policy? Um, so yeah, the question on, on, on a good approach to fiscal policy. Uh, I mean, I think a good approach to fiscal policy is to think about why we want any fiscal policy. And uh, when thinking about that, there, there are broadly three main reasons. One is uh, to address what economists call market failures, namely that the market system cannot or will not provide enough of certain goods. Uh, and so one example of this would be something like a justice system um, or something like street lighting, but also other things that are very important, like designing the economic system. So, so we clearly need some fiscal policy to deal with that. Um, the other, I think, which comes straight out of sort of economics 101 is the idea that um, the market system is designed to be efficient, but efficiency is not the same as equitable. And in general, there might be some trade-offs between efficiency and equity. And and in some sense, the government has a role to play in addressing those. Uh, And then the last one is is that of the sort of macro policy side. So in the case of business cycles, maybe reducing the costs of them Um, or, uh, you know, um, using macro policy spending and and taxation decisions 
to potentially uh, boost growth um, in general, not just around the cycle. So it's interesting that you mentioned the business cycle and going back to Econ 101, we always think about balancing the economic cycle as spending less during the good times and spending more during the bad times. And of course, this is taught as a general principle without any reference to a budget constraint. And I wonder, as a lowly microeconomist who knows relatively little about prudent macro policy, is there a tension between this behaviour and perhaps the need to keep a balanced budget? I mean, there can be a tension, but there doesn't. There's not some in, inherent tension that has to exist. Uh, I mean, ultimately, in terms of deciding what what role fiscal policy will play in an economy, this is a this is a choice for politicians rather than for um, economists. Uh, and, um, and and so that applies to all the the three parts, but including the macro stabilization part. Um, so, so what you were describing is the classic, and you're right, it is the classic thing we tend to teach uh, in first-year economics, in first-year macro, the idea of um, counter-cyclical policy, uh, often associated with John Maynard Keynes. Um, but but um, in general, the idea is that you can do that, but, but in order to do that successfully, uh, you would want to be not spending a lot in the good years. Um, so that's the counter-cyclical. Counter-cyclical has both the upside and the downside to it. So, so if you're going to use it to spend heavily to make up for a lack of demand in recessional times, then you're going to want to be doing the opposite when things are going very well. Uh, and I think when uh, a lot of people think about this, they, they think about the downside and it's very obvious to them. But, but it's less obvious that you also need to compensate to, to average out by not spending as much in the good times. So that line of reasoning informed the Fiscal Council's advice in more recent times to be prudent and hold back on spending as times have been relatively good. That's right. So, so I mean, um, for the listeners who, who, who don't sort of pay detailed attention to the uh, uh, Irish economic architecture or budgetary architecture, that's, that's exactly what the Fiscal Council is there for. So... Um, uh, it's a statutory body um, established by the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Sort of the name already starts to give it away, be responsible with fiscal policy. And essentially the council has four, four main parts uh, to our mandate, um, uh, assessing and endorsing the government's macro forecasts, um, assessing their budget forecasts, assessing the stance of fiscal policy, and then monitoring any compliance with fiscal rules. So, you know, if you if you sort of take that um, that 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 exactly the responsibility part of the name of the act really gives you that sense of it's not at all um, our, our our role on the council to tell governments what to spend on, who to tax, anything like that. Uh, rather, it's our job to assess what they're what they're doing, what the implications of what they are planning to do are and also to see how they fit within the broader macroeconomic environment in which they are. So, for example, um, in a normal year, uh, there would be a budget um, towards the end of the year, and in preparing that budget and in preparing new policies or changing policies and, and assessing how much tax revenue that would bring in or how much it's going to cost the exchequer to, to, to go ahead with some spending plans, 
uh, they will come up with macroeconomic forecasts. So first of all, we'd assess the macroeconomic forecasts and where they make sense, where they're realistic, and then see whether then the implications for the budget make sense and then what that means overall. So when, when you will have heard in the past, the Fiscal Council is, uh, is pushing for the government to be more prudent, that would typically be because we are at a point in the cycle where we think things are going pretty well, the economy is going pretty well, and we don't want uh, overspending in the good times because that will then limit the ability of the government to respond when they need to in that counter-cyclical sense, so in a downturn. I mean, I think the other thing that I, sh I should emphasize with respect to the uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act um, is that uh, it, it's also the, uh, the, the Council's role to assess whether any non-adherence to rules or non-compliance with fiscal rules, so, so mainly to have a sort of a, a prudent fiscal policy, uh, is whether that non-compliance is the result of exceptional circumstances. I think, you know, we haven't had to invoke that yet, but you can certainly see that it's within the mandate of the Council and, and, and part of the Fiscal Responsibility Act that all of these rules that we talk about, all of this being prudent, balancing the budget, is exactly so that there is space to respond. There is sort of ammunition left to take action when it's most needed. So having discussed the importance of leaving that space, perhaps it might be useful to discuss the importance of not having that money in reserve for a rainy day. What would be the implications? Um, I'd imagine we'd have to borrow if we didn't keep our house in order. Would we be seen as a bad bet for lenders? Therefore, the cost of borrowing perhaps would be higher. I, I mean, it can be. That's at least sometimes the worry. Um, and it, it's very difficult to know. It's certainly very difficult to know in advance what the cost of borrowing will be and when, if at all, um, markets may decide that they do not wish to lend um, to a given government uh, anymore. Um, and so uh, right now, I, I, I guess we are in time, certainly in my lifetime and certainly in my lifetime as an economist, we're in a very unusual position. Um, and I, I have to say, uh, we don't know what the markets will do. We don't know whether or not or how much they will be willing to lend. Um, and I guess we'll probably come on to it um, in, in a bit. But there are other bodies, including the European Central Bank, who are taking action that is helping to ensure liquidity in the system and to ensure the stability of the financial system. Um, and even taking actions to purchase government debt, which, again, makes the market deeper and therefore makes it easier for governments to borrow. Um, it's certainly the case, I, I, I would say, that unlike in 2008, we, we are actually entering this current health crisis in, in relatively good shape. Now, that's not to say everything's been perfect, but growth has been relatively strong and, and pretty well balanced recently. Um, if, if, if anything... Um, we were assessing that the other big sh potential shock to Ireland aside, the Brexit shock, um, that overheating was starting to look more likely, but it had not yet become at all a severe problem. Households and business in general had, had relatively sound financial positions. Um, and the government's budget, although we had relatively high debt uh, 
debt ratios measured relative to GNI star, which is our preferred measure, this, uh, this adjusted measure of, of national output, the projection was for it to continue to fall. So in some sense, um, I, I think you're right to be concerned in the sense that normally, uh, if you spend a lot of money and you have big deficits, this would be potentially a cause for alarm. Uh, I certainly think that that cause for alarm is, at, at least at this present moment, sort of second order relative to the, 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 the health crisis that we're sort of fighting. So before moving on, we could perhaps wrap up our general discussion of what constitutes prudent fiscal policy by discussing a paper you wrote in a UK context. Um, I think the headline message was that sound fiscal policy is not necessarily what appears a face value to be an evenly balanced budget, but perhaps you can correct me on that. Yeah, I think I think this is really important uh, to understand, and it's not it's not really even um, it's not the beauty of this work is that uh, it's very old work. Uh, I, I sort of replicated and discussed it in in, in a UK context recently, but um, it's it's not it's not a theory. Um, it's it's accounting. Um, now there are there are. There are downfalls with it being accounting, namely that a bunch of things that we think are important, like, as you were alluding to earlier, what rate of interest does the government have to pay on its debt? Um, that, that's just taken as a given in this framework. But it's this, it's this old framework of accounting that looks at the potential drivers of the debt-to-GDP ratio. In most countries, they use a debt-to-GDP ratio. This is in the same way that you would consider somebody's debt as a household, you would consider it relative to some measure of how, how able to pay they would be, so like debt to income of some kind. Um, the debt to GDP ratio is normalizing government debt in a similar way. But, but the key point with that is whether or not a deficit is sustainable really depends on um, how costly it is for the government to borrow and also how quickly they grow. Um, so, so I actually, I'll always remember, I started studying economics in school um, in, in, the, uh, in the early 90s. Um, and I remember at the time learning that the Irish debt is very high. And by the time I finished my undergraduate degree in Trinity, uh, which is in 2000, Irish debt was, was much lower and looked very you know, comfortable by international standards. And it seemed to be just on a downward trajectory. Now, the reason it was on a downward trajectory over that period was not because the government was running huge surpluses and paying off debt. It was that the economy was growing so quickly that essentially the mass of debt that wasn't really getting any smaller in an absolute sense was just getting much smaller in a relative sense. And, and so you can't you can grow your way out of, of, of high debt but the difficulty, uh, and, and, and similarly, if, if the debt is very cheap to service, then you can also sustain bigger deficits without, without causing a sort of sustainability problem. Um, it's a very simple framework, but I think it's very important to understand because certainly then it, it does guide some of the decisions that governments um, should be making at times, in normal times, when thinking about when they should borrow. And in particular, if, you, if you're borrowing to invest and that investment is going to lead to higher growth and higher output in the coming years, then that, that absolutely makes sense to borrow for. And it perhaps in normal times makes less sense to borrow heavily for what you would consider um, current spending. 
um, things that are just being paid for today and maybe not going to lead to higher productivity or higher growth in the future. Of course, uh, you know that. So, so, so that, that's the sense in which this this framework is is very uh, is very nice and guides you. But but again, it, it, where it misses out is on your first question about you know when will you be able to keep borrowing at low interest rates? Well, the answer is you know we don't know perfectly, and that model doesn't that that framework doesn't have anything to say on that. So just to take stock of the fiscal situation in our discussion so far, um, the economy has been performing well. People are working earning money, creating value in society, helping to make us better off, so much so even that we were in danger of overheating uh, and growing at a pace that's perhaps detrimental, may lead to excessive inflation and other you know, side effects. Um, but alongside that, I noticed from Fiscal Council documents that we may be doing well to, to the extent that we had built a buffer in terms of a rainy day fund and a Brexit contingency, contingency fund. Uh, would that be fair to say? Well, well, we were we were on the right track, but the ready day fund isn't uh, certainly is not as uh, as well resourced as we would have liked, um, and that's why I said like while things were going in the right direction, um, it certainly wasn't the case that the fiscal council um, just uh, patted the government on the back every 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 budget to say everything's perfect, well done, keep going, um, but 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 regardless of that, like I said, I think we were coming into this in the right. Uh, it, 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 it moving in the right direction, um, and you know this this COVID nineteen shock. Uh, I think we have to be very clear about how we think about it. This is this is um, this is almost certainly going to cause a big change in um, output in the Irish economy, as it will in other economies around the world. Um, but it's a little bit different to normally. Because, you know, and, and I find it weird whenever I say this, but this is a desirable recession, if that's where we're going. You know, this is a shutdown which is being done in order to aid public health. The, the, the shock is a public health shock. And the recession is part of the treatment for that. Um, so, so... As far as my view right now, and I, I should probably emphasize that uh, when I'm speaking now, I speak, you know, as a member of the Fiscal Council, but not for the Fiscal Council. So this is my personal view. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a sort of a broad three-pronged approach to this. And that is, first and foremost, we must address the health crisis. Uh, and that means supporting health sector workers, buying ventilators, equipment, expanding the supply of uh, intensive care unit beds as necessary. Um, and, and in a sense, this is the first challenge to which the fiscal authority has to be ready to sort of uh, mobilize large amounts of resources. And, and, and given that part of that response includes, you know, essentially putting the economy into a sort of partial and temporary coma, to use medical language, um, that makes the recession part of it desirable. Uh, the second part then for fiscal policy or for the government to think about is that during that desirable recession, it's necessary to support the economy because what we can't do is click the pause button and then expect us to wait however long it is. And this is part of the difficulty. It's very uncertain how long it will be. Will it be three months? Will it be six months? Will it be longer? But to... to the government can take action that while they have 
put this economy into a kind of paused lockdown scenario, that they can provide support for the economy and particularly for households first and foremost and for businesses in order to ensure that after this uh, health shock has subsided, that, that, that we are in the best possible position to recover. Some of this involves just direct support, but some of it is a slightly more difficult, like things about protecting food supply, protecting um, uh, less headline-grabbing issues like waste processing and these things. You know, we need to make sure certain aspects of the economy can keep going uh, during the lockdown and so that we're ready to go. And it's only then, it's only once the health crisis subsides that we will start to think about the more traditional form of fiscal stimulus. The idea that hopefully there is, you know, the economy is relatively healthy, relatively ready to get going. And we, what we see is a, a very clear case of sort of a, a V-shaped recovery, the sort of we drop down very quickly, but we recover very quickly. There's a whole bunch of sort of... A, intertemporal substitution. So people who would have consumed in Q1 and Q2, they just defer that to Q3 and Q4. And, and, you know, basically by the end of the year or middle of next year, things are looking great. That's a very optimistic scenario. In a more pessimistic scenario, there are longer running uh, effects. And and it will be then that the government can think more about a natural amount of stimulus. And the problem is, like I said, there's a lot of uncertainty about all of this. Uh, how long will we be in the health crisis? How damaging will that period of uh, temporary stasis be for the economy? But, you know, you, you were mentioning the sort of there was some money set aside for Brexit. Uh, and that's right. But, but I, I think so far, at least the government packages so far have been 3.2 billion originally and then a further 3.7 billion uh, you know, in the last sort of seven days. Like combined, that's 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 more than five times what was envisaged for the response to a disorderly Brexit. So, so these are let there be no doubt about it. These are big numbers, and and the final cost in terms of income and business support, and then later stimulus as required, will depend entirely on how long the crisis lasts, and ultimately what has to be done to keep the economy as close to what we thought was the path it was on before this. Um, and, and remember that all of this will happen at a time that there's going to be big shortfalls in revenue. So we're going to see big numbers in terms of spending and big drops in terms of revenue. So, so, so uh, I think our net debt burden at the end of last year was around 85% of, of GNI star, yeah, gross national, modified gross national income. And it was already somewhat high relative to other advanced economies. And, and this number is certainly going to go up. But, but we should remember that, that this is exactly what we would want the fiscal authority to do. This is exactly why we would want the government to be prudent most of the time so that they are able to do this. So one thing that struck me recently is that some countries seem to be better able to keep the virus contained than others. And Ireland seems to be performing quite well in that regard. Um, maybe if we compare the Irish performance to, say, the US, which seems to be a laggard, maybe slow to get started. So early uh, early action seems to be very important for containing the virus. And if, if we come out of the traps a bit early and are ready to go back to work before other countries, besides the obvious health benefits and the, the very important, uh, most important health benefits, are we at an economic advantage as a first mover or do we need to wait for everyone else to get back to normal? Um, 
I think of this especially as we are a small open economy. I'd imagine the economic impacts are predicated on not only how well we do, but how well other countries respond. That's right. So, so I mean, I, I think the bit that, that, that I certainly um, still struggle to get my head around is what it even means when we say get back to normal. Because um, I think the current situation, which um, certainly in my local area in the UK and, and, and from from what I hear from friends and family back in Dublin, um, you know, people are uh, actually following the rules, staying in except where necessary and, and sort of taking the right measure. And I think this is all absolutely, like I said, desirable. It's brilliant. I think the more compliant we are, the, the, the better the outcomes will be, not necessarily for the economy, but, but if we remember the original reason for this, this idea of flattening the epidemic curve, it's, it's really, this is really what we are all doing when we're being asked to stay home and limit our social interactions and social distancing and all of that. We are doing this to protect the frontline workers in the health system so that they are not, that, you know, the tsunami of infections and, and particularly the stories that I heard from friends in Milan about doctors having to make decisions about who to treat and who to not treat. I mean, you know, even just on a kind of interpersonal human level, if we can protect people from having to, you know, doctors from having to make those decisions too much, then I think this is all sort of, in a sense, worth it. Now, but, but you're absolutely right. Even, even if we do our jobs of staying home very well, uh, as an open economy, the new normal that we end up in in six months' time, three months' time, is going to be difficult because, like you say, this is not this virus doesn't respect borders. It doesn't say, well, the Irish did well in in March, April, May, so therefore, you know, they're clear. We're not going to go back there. Uh, you know, it, it, that's not how it works. You know, the, the question of when we start having regular flying between countries again, and that that's exactly the issue. If if you start opening the flights for trade to come in from Asia, from the Middle East, from the US, from Africa, you are again opening yourself to potential susceptibility of people bringing the virus in with them. So, so, so I think the only point at which we'll really feel, and I'm not, a, I'm not a medical doctor or an epidemiologist, but at least for me, the sense of when you can start thinking about getting fully back to normal is a point where we do have widespread testing in place particularly the sort of uh, the, 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 the retrospective test to see whether somebody has it, whether they have the antibodies, whether they are potentially uh, not so much of a risk anymore. But I think we're still quite a bit away from that. And then ultimately, when we have some kind of cure or some kind of treatment that we know works very quickly, very well. Um, but, but, but so I think that the uncertainty around that is... Uh, is the bit where I think it's great when countries are compliant and the more countries that are compliant and, and even within a country, the more people that are compliant. This all helps with achieving the first order objective of this, which is the protection of our health systems. Because the thing we really have to fear is the fact that the, the, the mortality rates from directly from this virus are much lower when we can treat the most severely sick with ventilators and with intensive care unit treatment. When we have overrun our intensive care unit systems, when we have run out of ventilators, the mortality rate in the absence of a ventilator will go up and go up a lot. 
Moreover, the mortality rate from other things which we are currently or in a normal time we would currently treat in hospital and have good outcomes from on average, they will also go up. So, so, so there is potentially, you know, uh, a, a double effect of, of being sensible of flattening this curve. Um, so, so that's, in some sense, the economic effects may or may not bear out because of the openness of the Irish economy and because of the general need for uh, trade across borders to still take place if we want to get back to normal. But the first order impact of protecting the health se- uh, sector should be number one at the moment, at least. OK, so we've discussed a fair bit about fiscal policy. Perhaps now we can turn to monetary policy. Um, so what are the tools that the central bank uses when it comes to managing the economy? Sure. Well, so, so monetary policy, as, as I guess the name suggests, um, uh, historically refers to the question of literally how much money to allow to circulate in the economy. And this was the decision of central banks, often still under the control of governments or in some cases independent. Uh, Actually, in most advanced economies now, it refers to the decision about what the interest rate will be. So to some people, this may seem like a change, but actually it's really not because uh, the interest rate is simply the price of money. So uh, if one is the quantity, the other is the price, we're, we're, we're essentially central banks have moved to setting the price and allowing people decide how much money they want at that price. And, 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 and at least in normal times, the interest rate is a sort of fundamentally important variable, which, which will influence how much it costs, for example, a household to borrow on a mortgage or on a credit card. It will influence how much firms or the government pay to borrow. And therefore, it plays a sort of central role in affecting the investment and consumption decisions in, in an economy. Uh, and so that's that's the sort of normal times. The interest rate is the tool. They can adjust that. If they put the interest rate up, it makes investment and consumption potentially less desirable. It makes savings more desirable. So people will switch their behavior. and It affects demand in that way. And, and in normal times, this has been used to control a little bit the state of the economy, economy, but mainly with a focus on controlling inflation. Um, and, and the reason for that focus on inflation is because ultimately that's that's what controlling the amount of money in the economy is ultimately going to drive the price level. And, and the way I always tell my students to think about this is if you were to think about uh, an auction room where everybody brings in some money and uh, they're bidding on one particular item, and uh, suddenly we make an announcement that everybody can add a zero to the money they brought in. Well, so the 20 euros becomes 200 euros and so on. It doesn't, it's not going to change the fact that we still have one item to buy. It's just going to multiply the ultimate price of that item by 10. So, um, so, so, so that's, that's, the, that's the sort of the basic idea. And we've seen that happen in the past. I mean, there have been countries who've genuinely, genuinely flooded their economy with more and more money. And Zimbabwe being the most famous recent example where they you know, started circulating $100 trillion bills. I actually have a few of them because I used to live in Zimbabwe. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's a one with 14 zeros after it. Um, and, and, and the impact of that on the economy was that ultimately prices were doubling about once a day at the worst of the crisis. So that means something that cost a pound uh, or a one Zimbabwe dollar at the start of the day, the next day would cost two, the next day four, the next day eight, and so on. And you can just see how the system just sort of runs out. 
I mean, there are there are great there are great examples through history of of times during what what are called hyperinflations when inflation is so far out of control, where uh, the paper money no longer has enough value as paper that people would actually burn it because you get more heat from it than you would from the wood you could buy with it. I mean, that's you know that's when you know the system is broken. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so okay, so right, so we want to control inflation. Um, and since the 2008 crash, uh, there's been a lot of talk about quantitative easing in terms of maybe keeping things ticking over. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about that and for the maybe the layperson, what exactly is meant by quantitative easing? Okay, fine. So, so everything I described about adjusting the interest rate, uh, and I'm going to get a little bit uh, technical here now just for one second and with one word, um, but I'm sure the... Uh, Irish Economics Podcast listeners uh, will be totally okay with these terms. But the key thing is that central banks don't control the real interest rate, they control the nominal interest rate. So when you see interest rates mentioned in the bank, they're talking about how much money you earn on your savings. So if they say 5% and you have 100 quid in there, they're going to give you £5 at the end of it. The real interest rate would think about the purchasing power of it. Now, the problem with this is that the nominal interest rate faces a constraint. Um, And the constraint comes from the fact that the alternative to putting money in the bank and holding it as a deposit is holding it as cash. Now, most of the time when the interest rate is positive, then actually cash is dreadful because cash pays zero interest rate in nominal terms. But if the bank started telling you that they were going to take 10% of your money off you as the interest rate, so the interest rate became minus 10%, you could just go to the Bank of Ireland, AIB, whoever, and just withdraw all your cash, put it in boxes beneath your bed and earn zero, as opposed to losing 10% in the bank. And that puts a bit of a limit on how far the nominal interest rate can go below zero. And what happened after the global financial crisis was in order to try and stimulate the economy uh, with the nominal interest rate, interest rates got to their lower bound. Now, we used to think the lower bound was zero. It turns out you can make it a little bit negative. We're not quite sure how negative, but certainly it runs out of power once we get down to that, that effective lower bound or that zero lower bound. Okay. I mean, one reason why you might accept slightly negative interest rates is because obviously there's a cost in terms of security and storage of putting all your money under your bed or whatever. Um, but given that that weakens the ability of the central bank to change its normal instrument, the interest rate, to affect the economy, central banks came up with alternative policies, often called unconventional monetary policy. Um, and there are a variety of different uh, aspects of this, but one of them is this thing called quantitative easing. And what quantitative easing was doing was recognizing that what what we really want to affect are the interest rates that affect people's decisions in the economy. It turns out that most people in the economy can't borrow directly at the central bank interest rate. The central bank interest rate is very short horizon. So, you know, it depends on the country, but it can be overnight or it can be up to a month, but it's very short horizon. Nobody buys a house or does a big investment project as a company with a one-month loan because then the next month you'd have to try and borrow again and again and again. It would be just sort of onerous, at least just in terms of the management of it. So most people would do those sort of projects with maybe a three-year loan, a five-year loan, a 
20-year mortgage, whatever. And it turns out that even if the very short-run interest rate that the central bank controls hit zero, they can influence interest rates at five years for 10-year loans, for 20-year loans. And one way they do this is by purchasing government bonds or corporate bonds, potentially, at those longer maturities. And the basic idea is if they buy up a lot of the government bonds that are 10-year maturity, then people who want to take 10-year investment decisions have to look for something else. And one thing they can do is they can lend cheaply to the banks who can then pass it on to consumers and to businesses. And so even though it sounds like a very different thing, and it is because it's directly purchasing these assets in the market, the objective is still the same. It's to lower the interest rates that affect the decisions that people make. And in the case of after the global financial crisis, that was to lower interest rates to make it cheaper and easier to uh, invest and to borrow potentially for spending. And, and, and so QE doesn't face the same constraints, at least in terms of if there are bonds out there, the central bank can print money and buy those bonds. It does face some constraints in that the interest rates on longer maturity debt can also go towards or even potentially below zero. And then the question might be asked about how effective further QE would be. So are these constraints binding at the moment or are we approaching a situation where they could be binding? Um, I don't know. I certainly think it's going to be less effective or potentially less effective this time. That doesn't mean we shouldn't, uh, central banks shouldn't try it. Um, certainly at this point, uh, my view of the central bank's role at, at this exact moment in this current crisis where we are, um, and I'm not sure when you put this out, but for the listeners, it's the 30th of March today. So um, we're, we're, still, we're still in the first quarter of the year, just about. Um, at this point, given where we are, the central bank, the, the main role they're playing is their lender of last resort you know, uh, role, which is to ensure that banks have liquidity, have access to liquidity if they need it, that we don't lose banks because of um, an inability to borrow because of disruptions in financial markets. So I think that's the first, the, the, the first fight that the central bank is playing. Where we'll be testing the limits of QE and the ability to stimulate the economy will come in what I talked about earlier as the third phase, when we're actually past the main health crisis and we're trying to, to grow out of this. Now, every action that the central bank takes, for example, purchasing bonds through QE, makes the borrowing rates for governments potentially lower, and, and potentially much lower. Um, and the ECB has also responded uh, with their, uh, and I, if I can try and remember the, the, the name of the... Um, they have this uh, pandemic uh, program, uh, purchase program, uh, w which they will deploy in order to ensure that yields um, on government bonds, so the, the cost to uh, the pandemic emergency purchase program, um, you know, that will ensure that if yields start to rise, they can sort of dampen those. So that, that's, that's vitally important at this phase and in the phase of the future. But I really think that this this crisis is going to be the burden of this crisis will be shouldered a, a lot more by the fiscal um, side of the, the the macro policy program, partly because I think you're 
may be right that that we're running out of uh, a little bit of a, um, effective uh, um, instruments to use. But but that's but that's not to downplay the importance, the vital importance of the liquidity and lender of last resort uh, aspects of the central bank. And so I think central banks will play an important role in this, but maybe not the same lead role that they played in the last decade. Okay, so I suppose now we're facing a fiscal shock rather than a monetary shock. And in other words, that's a shock to our public finances rather than our banking system. Perhaps the primary concern is how governments will find their money. Um, So you mentioned that many of the interventions to date are making the cost of borrowing quite low. But there's a lot of talk surrounding euro bonds or corona bonds, as they're also called. Do you think these... Do you see these playing a role in the economic response to COVID-19? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I should say, on this, from a fiscal council point of view, uh, specific financing arranges are sort of beyond our remit. Um, and 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 so on that front, we don't, I, I don't think we have an, a, an official view. Um, you know, from a personal point of view, I, I, I'm, in, I, I'm actually in favour of these uh, um, and addressing what, what, what has been pointed out in the past. Um, so, Corona bonds, if you want. Uh, um, I think when they first came on the scene in a proposal by a number of macroeconomists, um, they were called ESBs. Um, you know, this idea of some kind of syndicated bond issued at the pan Europe, pan EU level or pan euro area level, um, with the idea being that uh, individual countries uh, addressing in particular these, like I say, very sensible fiscal, large, uh, aggressive fiscal responses do not find themselves uh, both themselves in trouble uh, and also calling into question the the sustainability of the euro. now, one argument against them that I've heard is that, you know, right now, as you said, most countries, all countries in the euro area can borrow pretty cheaply and certainly very cheaply by historical standards. And, and I already mentioned the ECB's pandemic emergency purchase program, if I can start to remember what that is, PEP. Um, uh, you know, th- th- that's sort of sitting there in the background to, to, to kick in if yields did start to rise. And, and even then, there's the European stability mechanism, which is sort of in the background as well, so that the debt crisis sort of starts to come back. So, so one argument is, well, we have lots of things there to address it. Nonetheless, I guess I, I, I in general, if, if European governments sort of started pushing in that direction, I would not think uh, it, it's, it's a bad thing to, um, to address this gap in, in the European, euro area fiscal architecture. Um, but again, like I say, I, so... so for Ireland, actually, if I if I if I say a few things about Ireland, um, I, I think that, um, like, the, the government cost of borrowing right now for Ireland is still essentially zero, um, uh, down a lot in recent years, certainly down from the highs after the financial crisis, um, and even in March, Ireland was able to raise uh, quite a lot of money at, at, at zero interest rates. Um, and, and so the outstanding cost of our debt is probably down around 2% now, uh, which, is, which basically just means that, that, that worries about how this borrowing will sort of cripple Ireland in the coming years, I think, is possibly overblown. The other thing which I think deserves to be mentioned, um, 
and uh, this so, so obviously in Ireland it's uh, NTMA who do uh, who handle this 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 stuff. But Ireland has had a pre-funding strategy, which has meant that actually its cash balances for the government are quite quite are very good. Um, uh, and so uh, our, our chief economist at, uh, at the Fiscal Council and the, and the secretary team um, told us this recently, and, and, and I hadn't had the details until then. But at the end of February, Ireland had £26 billion already raised to fund £19 billion of redemptions this year. And there are no redemptions in 2021. And then from 2021 to 2024... Redemptions are going to be about 27 billion. And to put that into context, in the three years between 2017 and 2020, redemptions were about 70 billion. So, so just in, in, in a kind of how often you have to go to the market with, with, you know, asking them to lend you money, Ireland is actually in a very healthy position. And so in that sense, um, I, I, I guess it's not desperate for us that there is these these. Corona bonds, ESBs, Euro bonds, whatever you want to call them, um, and and so I would not, I would not, you know, I, I I would I would certainly think that if if no if no progress is made on that, as much as from an individual point of view, I I think they're a desirable um, addition to the European fiscal architecture. From an Irish fiscal council point of view, they are not somehow the sort of necessary object that if they are not in place. We are going to be the government is going to be hamstrung in doing the right thing both this year with the health crisis and in the years to come, supporting and helping the economy to recover. So, so I think they're good, but 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 I don't. I'm not. I'm not lying awake going, "Gosh, if they don't come, uh, it's the end. It's the end for Irish fiscal policy." Not at all. So my understanding is that because our house is in order, we can borrow at a reasonable rate. If we had been less prudent on the lead-in, we might be facing higher interest rates and therefore the cost of handling the crisis would have been greater. Would that be true to say? Uh, that, that would certainly be uh, the, the argument of economists. This is, this is exactly... So, I mean, I know, um, I think Alan Greenspan referring to monetary policy, but I guess it applies to, um, to a lot of macroeconomists. So he, he, once accused, he once said that the monetary policy makers were the people who took the punch bowl away from the party before anybody got drunk. Um, and, and certainly, certainly, you know, I have I have friends who um, who, who probably think that, um, that 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 even just in general, when thinking about things, macroeconomists are sort of fairly miserable lot uh, in, in the sense that, you know, we're always worried about, uh, you know, you should be more prudent. You should be more prudent. And, and you know, there, 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 there are often calls in all countries. And I, th- I understand why it's very natural. There are calls that, you know, Things are good. Let us spend the money. And there's always some economists in the background saying, no, I think, you know, this is the time to save. This is the time to be prudent. But this is exactly why we say it. This is this is exactly the reason why we say be prudent, because by being prudent in the last years, and like I say, I'm sure, and I know in the, in the last year or so that I've been on the council, but I know going back before that, we were pushing for even more prudence and, and, and bigger build-up, you know, the rainy day fund, all these things. But we were going in the right direction and maybe not as quickly as, as, as we would have liked. But the, by going at least in the right direction, we are in a much better position than if, they, if the governments hadn't gone in that direction. And, and, and the key thing is for, for people not to suddenly think that then economists should now say, well, we should still be prudent. No, this is exactly when we should be bold. We should take action with fiscal policy to address the welfare 
of the populations that we serve. I mean, that's that's the point of fiscal policy here. So, so another issue that is getting a lot of traction lately is that of helicopter money, basically putting money straight into people's bank accounts to stimulate economic activity. My take is that I can see the stimulus. You're giving people money and they're likely to spend it and therefore we're keeping the economy going. But it seems to be an expensive way to go about it. You're giving money to people, some people who need it, some people who don't need it. You know, there are efficiency implications there where we're giving money where it might not necessarily be needed to be given away. So I can see, also see distributional implications. So on the other hand, I can see benefits, especially in terms of confidence. You know, if everyone has money, then I know my invoice will be paid at the end of the month. Perhaps you can give a more informed macro viewpoint on that. So, so okay, so okay, a few points that I have on this. One is, um, so let me just talk in general about helicopter money. The way I think about helicopter money is, it's it's really just a term, I think, a substitute term for essentially monetary financing. Um, largely because the central bank doesn't have the ability in its current, in their current setups, in, in any country that I know, to directly transfer money to households. Right. So, so how how would they do it? I mean, they, I mean, the the idea of actual helicopter money is to get the helicopter and just start throwing it out. Uh, and then, you know, clearly that's not going to happen. And there, you know, there's a there's a sort of public health uh, issue about everyone staying in right now. Uh, you, you, what you don't want is riots on Grafton Street because the helicopters just dropped a bag of cash that's exploded all over the place. Um, so, so, so you know, and, and it's also true that in general there's a grey area between monetary and fiscal policy. Now, in, in the normal times before the financial crisis, independent central banks made the distinction a bit clearer. Unconventional policy has grayed that a bit more. And I think helicopter money, which would be essentially the, the central bank printing money and then giving it to the government and asking them to transfer it through their infrastructure of the tax system or the benefit system to every household, that's just looking like fiscal policy that's been financed directly from printing of money. That's monetary finance to me. Uh, do I think we then want it now? Well, we do want some fiscal policy now. This is exactly what I said. We want fiscal policy to keep the, as you said, the engine running or to keep the, the, the sort of the economy ticking over. So it's not necessarily a stimulus, but keeping the economy um, ticking over that we that we may want something like this. And and there, and again, this goes back to my point about the being bold. Or actually, I always keep in mind. Um, uh, uh, the, the words of a, a fellow Irishman the, who's sprung to fame recently. Um, this guy, uh, Michael, Dr. Michael Ryan, um, he's the uh, executive director of the World Health Organization, World Health Organization, their uh, emergency responses, essentially. And in fact, in the current notebook I have where I keep my notes uh, on the Irish economy and the fiscal council stuff, I actually wrote down some of his quotes uh, because I thought, although he was talking to dealing with a pandemic outbreak, uh, I, I thought they applied pretty nicely to um, to macro policy as well. And they are, let me just get the quote, um, uh, react fast, be coordinated, be coherent, have no regrets. If you need to be right before you move, you will never win. Perfection is the enemy of the good. So, you know, I, I, I get your point about, you know, if we did go down the route of direct transfers of cash to people, 
whether that's through the central bank or through borrowing, the fiscal act of a direct monetary transfer to households, that there will be some people who get it who essentially didn't need it, and there'll be other people um, who probably could have gotten a bit more to really help them. I think trying to design the perfect system now is too hard and will take too long. So if you're going to make a mistake, go bold, make the mistake, and retrospectively fix it with higher tax rates on certain people, or you know, a, a sort of self-assessment tax system where people have to write what they actually earned in the year. And if my income didn't take a hit, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate as an academic, I, I can do most of my research, I can even do most of my teaching now without ever leaving uh, my desk at home. So, 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 so in that sense, I don't require the direct transfer um, and somebody else should. But if, if the government thinks the only way to figure out who to give money to is to do it to everyone and then retrospectively figure it out, then maybe that's the right thing. Don't, don't try and design the perfect system. But, that's, but again, that's not quite helicopter money because um, this, is, this is just the fiscal policy side of it. That's the transfer. Um, and the, 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 the helicopter money is, is the idea that the central bank prints the money directly to do it. I think we're a bit off that. I don't think we're going to get to direct monetary financing very quickly at all. Um, and certainly there are big legal impediments to doing it in the euro area. But I, and again, as a, as a macroeconomist and, and someone who studies both monetary and fiscal policies, I, I find it, um, it, it weird that I'm actually saying this, but I, I won't be surprised if in um, Western world, in OECD economies, we see one-off, independently entered into monetary financing episodes in some of the countries, if not all of them. I think it's going to be vitally important that the independence of the central banks is preserved, so central banks would have to enter into these things voluntarily. But actually, I don't think if they did do it, if they printed a bunch of money to directly give to the government, that uh, I don't think the inflationary impacts given where the economies are now or where they're likely to be when it, when, when it would happen, if it happens. Uh, I don't think there would be big impacts on the inflation side of the economy. And actually, I think in, in many economies, we've been struggling to get inflation up. So this could actually be benefit central banks as well by getting inflation back up to target or even slightly above target. Um, and then, you know, try and get once the economy's back on its feet to get back to business as usual um, with independent central banks and no monetary financing. Like I say, in the euro area, I think the, given the, the treaties and the legal impediments, I think we're, we're further away from it. But in some countries, I, I won't be surprised if we see it. OK, so I know we're coming up to an hour now, so I just want to touch on your own research before we clock off. Particularly your research on how central banks and monetary committees make decisions. I found that really interesting. Um, one paper you had especially re explored how a new governor of a central bank might behave. And you made the point, or you, your research made the point that once they take control, how they manage expectations can be as important as how they act, which has implications for policy, but perhaps even wider implications, but maybe you can take us through that piece of work. Yeah, so, so I think that fits in a, in a, in a broader, um, a, for a, it's part of a broader idea that's come out of monetary economics, I think, in the last 30 years. And I would say it's one of the most important things that's come out of monetary economics in the last uh, 30 years, is this focus on 
uh, the key role that expectations play in determining the behavior of the economy and in particular inflation. Now, different people have different models or whatever, but it, it, in almost all of them, the, the, the price-setting behavior of firms will itself depend on what they expect other firms to do. And so then managing expectations becomes one of the first order things that central banks have to do if they wish to control inflation. And so um, there are many ways you could do this. And, and, and the big thing that I've worked on has been most recently has been communication, which is, a, a, again, a, a relatively new area for central banks. But, but the, the signaling paper, actually, it's a paper with my uh, longtime co-author and friend, uh, Stephen Hansen. And actually, it's funny because I think that particular signaling paper is probably the best paper we've written. It's by no, it, by no stretch of the imagination is it our most cited. Um, by no stretch of the imagination do people really even look at it very much. So I'm glad at least you enjoyed it. You might be the other person who enjoys it. Well, so the thing I like about that paper is I just think it brings together a, a kind of neat theory. Um, it's got some complexity, but the basic idea can be easily understood. It's the idea that um, if you don't know how tough or not I will be on inflation, the first actions I take will set your expectations for my type very uh that, uh, with much more importance than later decisions, which actually means if I'm trying to convince you that I will be tough on inflation, I should be tougher at the start and then easier going forward. And, and the nice thing about that paper is I like the model, I like the theory, but we then structurally estimate the model with actual data to show it applies to policymakers. So in that sense, I just felt the whole paper tied together very nicely. And as an idea, this idea of dynamic signaling, I think it applies to lots of other areas. So if you think about appointing a new regulator, they should also go out and tell you they're going to be incredibly tough um, so that you don't violate the rules. And then in the end, they don't have to be tough. Um, but that idea, I think, is very nice. Um, and, and I think it has applications. Even And even monetary policy now, like I say, if we're trying to get inflation expectations up, then newly appointed central bankers should be very soft on inflation and to convince people they're going to be like that. So, yeah, no, I think it's a, that, that and the communication stuff is the sort of more interesting stuff about expectation management that I've been doing on central banks. I once, I once, I once heard a lovely story, a piece of advice to new teachers, which, you know, uh, I, I used a version of it when I first started being a graduate teaching assistant. Um, and that's the advice. If you're a new teacher, when you walk into the room, if the window is open, close it. If the window is closed, open it. It just exerts control over the room and people sort of know that you are then in, in, in charge. Uh, apparently, uh, this, this was advice given at some point and, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't actually open or close windows because in most universities you can't even control that anymore. But, but I used to do things like clear the board and make it very clear, therefore, that I am the person who's in charge. Uh, <laughs> That's a nice piece of advice, definitely. Um, okay, I know we're running out of time now. Um, I, I don't know if you if you want to maybe spend a minute or two just saying something about your communication work. Um, sure. If you have yeah, the time. no, no. I, I, where am I going? My diary is clear at the moment. This is one of the. I, I keep I keep making this joke, and I think it's it's probably some kind of. Uh, lockdown humor, but you know, I keep I, whenever someone sends me a message going, "Could you possibly, you know." 
have a chat with me at this time. I'm like, yeah, just check my diary. Yeah, I'm not doing anything. Um, uh, yeah, no, so the communication stuff, there's two aspects to it. One is the internal communication. So I've always had a lot of interest in in, in an area that most macroeconomists don't really study it. And largely because I think I think it's actually a micro, it's a micro topic. And that's um, how people actually make decisions. Uh, I'm interested in how monetary policy makers make decisions. So we know they meet as committees and they, they meet for days and they talk and then they take, in many cases, a vote at the end. And so I've done a lot of work looking at how they vote and how they discuss. And in particular, looking at the effect of transparency. And the big thing on the transparency work with the Fed was most of macroeconomists think that the effects of greater transparency would be to shut down debate. So the idea is if you know what you say is going to be made public, you're going to be more guarded and you're not going to say things in case you say something stupid. Um, and, and that may be part of it. And, and there's micro theories that suggest that is part of it. But there are also micro theories that suggest a, a second effect, which we called uh, the discipline effect. And that is if you know what you're going to say is going to be made public, you make more effort in advance in order to make sure your facts are in place, that you have the right numbers, that you know, you've know you thought through your story. And given that central banks, when they make monetary policy decisions, are really making this decision in a world of uncertainty, and they're trying to get as, as good a decision as possible, it's essentially an information accumulation exercise. And so if we have higher transparency that weakens the transmission of information through dialogue, free dialogue, but increases the amount of information that everybody brings to the meeting, then actually the net effect of that on, on the information and therefore the decisions is, is, is not so clear that transparency would be bad. And we actually made this case in, 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 in a paper, which I think is... Uh, I like it as a paper, and I, and, I, and I think a lot of people will know it because it sort of brought tools from computational linguistics uh, to bear in economics in one of the first published papers. Um, and then my other work has been on external communication, and at the moment my main thing is about how monetary policy communicates with the general public. And the reason for that is because, to be honest, even, even some economists find uh, the, the, the writings of central bankers to be incredibly turgid technical stuff. And not just boring, but in some cases just uh, impossible to decipher what they really mean. And if, if you think even people with an undergraduate or a postgraduate degree in economics struggle with that, the average person in the economy has no hope at all. And so this was work I did with Andy Haldane uh, at the Bank of England, um, and, you know, one thing that, uh, that really struck, struck me was the average person in, in focus groups, so focus groups of, of, of normal members of the, of the general public in the UK, um, average people do not know what inflation and output mean or even what or GDP means. Those terms mean nothing to them. What they do understand are prices and jobs. But no central bank was talking to them in that way. If they were putting out these things that were basically targeted at financial markets um, and, and in some perfect Hayekian world, the financial markets can aggregate all of the information and transmit it through prices. And so in a sense, nobody normal has to read the central bank material so long as the people in the financial markets are. But, you know, 
2008-2009 must have taught us, if nothing else, that financial markets aren't perfect. Um, and more than that, that um, there may be other reasons why you want to talk directly to the public. And in particular, since the financial crisis, and partly because of people not understanding what QE is, why it was, people seeing it as a direct bailout of the banks, there, there are reasons of building trust with people whereby communicating directly with them helps to build that trust. And so I've done a lot of work in trying to explore what works well, what doesn't work, who does it work with, what are the gaps. And there is huge heterogeneity in who can understand it, who trusts the central banks. And I think this is still a long way to go on that and something which I'm, uh, I'm continuing to work on. And I think it's a very fruitful and interesting area to work in at the moment. Now, it definitely is a very novel area of research. But just so I'm clear in my mind, you're improving the communication with a view to improving the trust. But what would be the benefits of this improved trust? Well, so like I said, and I sort of mentioned this already, I mean, I feel very strongly that we do want to keep monetary policy independent of the fiscal authority. I think that separation has been incredibly helpful for economies. Now, we've seen a rise in more populist type governments around the world. And um, these could threaten that independence. And so in order to help protect the independence, the general public has to understand why an independent central bank is useful, and they have to believe that the independent central bank is doing things to help them. Uh, and so that level of trust is actually going to be very important for this dialogue that goes forward between governments and uh, the voting public, but also the central bank and the, and the public. And so uh, that's one reason uh, in order to do it. The other reason why you really want to do it directly is because actually consumption of households makes up in most advanced economies, makes up about 70% of economic activity. So when I said earlier that, you know, expectations determine how people will behave, if you can control the expectations of the general public, you can have a much greater and direct influence on the economy than if you're trying to work indirectly only through firms or through investment or through the government. And so the more you can convince households that, you know, now is a good time to spend, a favorable time, or now is not a good time, it's a good time to save, I think that will help the uh, efficacy of uh, monetary policy tools that central banks have at providing this macro stabilization that, that we've talked about a few times. And so, so there's a couple of reasons why you want it, both on the sort of political economy side, but also more directly on the monetary side. So, so I, I, I actually, I think there's a good case to be made for, for more direct communication with the public. Now, the big question, and I raised this in a recent paper, um, you know, that's, that's sort of, can we explain it in a way they understand? But there are two other E's that we need to address, and they are engagement Namely, when I've done experiments on this type of thing, we've paid people to read central bank communication. Um, and so when, they, when they're paid to read it, it seems to have the effects that we'd like. But how are we going to convince them to stop looking at cat videos on YouTube or stop reading Donald Trump's Twitter and instead actually pay attention to this stuff and, and be aware that this stuff matters? And that's a big challenge. And then the second part of that is the, the, second, the third E. So you have explanation there, you have... Uh, engagement and then the third part is education because it turns out that the people who are most likely to engage are those that are most educated and i still find it quite surprising that in most countries in the world if you graduate the sort of high school level exams 
you will probably know how to calculate the volume of a sphere, but you won't necessarily have any idea what an interest rate is. Uh, and that's not to take away from knowledge about the volume of a sphere. I think understanding mathematics is useful even beyond the need to calculate the volume of a sphere. But almost everybody in their adult life will engage in some form, either from saving or most likely from debt, with interest rates. And the fact that most people don't really understand them, what they are, how they're influenced, how they're set, how they affect them, I think is detrimental in terms of financial literacy and then the ability of the households to make better decisions. So again, I think education is a really important thing, aspect of this that we need to address. I'm not arguing that the central bank has to address that, and, and probably it's something that the national curricula should be uh, adjusted to address. But but it's certainly, I think these three E's are very important, and I think we still have a long way to go uh, in in that engagement. And, and just I should say, I've been I've been um, making this point with the fiscal council as well. I think fiscal policy also has to do it. But 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 politicians in general are much better at speaking to the general public than central bankers. Um, I think I think uh, by by standard reading measures, you know, you can you can calculate how difficult something is to read using various uh, computational measures. Very simple things like how complex the sentences are, how many words they are, how long the sentences are. Uh, sorry, how long how long the words are within the sentence, how many subclauses, etc. So one of the most popular ones is called the Flesch-Kincaid measure, and by that measure. The typical communication from the central bank requires about 14 to 16 years of education to read. That's not even the technical terms. It's not even do you understand the sort of the, the, the economics of it. Just to be able to read it, you have to be a university graduate. Politicians speak at a grade eight level. So anybody with kind of high school education or even a little below high school education can read it. Uh, I think we need to start moving uh, certainly from 14 to 16 down towards 10 and even 8 uh, if we really want to engage a wider public. Okay, uh, Michael, I think we've touched on everything there. Uh, thank you very much for your time. It When you're able to engage a microeconomist, uh, I think you have definitely done something right. 